Hello, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Ashley Matthews. I'm the education pastor here on the west side. We're thrilled to have you with us. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And while you're flipping there, I will piggyback on um, Brad's announcements about neighborhood groups and just say that it sort of strikes me every time we talk about them. It's not lost on me, nor does it feel like a coincidence that in a cultural moment like the one we find ourselves in, where um, it would seem that we are increasingly being encouraged towards greater degrees of separation and division, maybe even demonization of people who do not think like us or are not like us in any number of ways, that um, feels like a real gift and a real grace that we feel at that time, a time such as this, that God has called us to gather across lines of difference, like where we live, to band together as the body of Christ and um, pray together and build relationships together. And so I just want to say, you know, we believe our conviction is that these groups, these gatherings really can be not just a way for us to have our own needs met, but maybe even if God would be so kind, they could actually be like agents of healing for us socially and culturally. We could have what we need in order to like face you know, the world around us to speak into something. We could be in that way, if you imagine it, all over this city, little outposts of the kingdom of heaven in which we are fighting for, holding on to um, relationship with each other, even while culture pushes us farther and farther apart. So maybe so, Lord. Um, If you have your Bibles, we're going to read starting in verse 13. These are the words of Jesus. Continuation of, as Chris called it last week, Jesus' greatest hit. This is a Sermon on the Mount. We'll read and we'll pray. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but a salt has lost its taste. How can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Holy Spirit, We thank you, God, for the gift of your presence here with us. We thank you, Lord, this morning for church, for the promise, Lord, that you are with us when we gather, Lord, whether it be here on a Sunday in a room this size or in our living rooms across the city, Lord, you are with us. And um, our hope, our prayer, God, is that when we gather and we meet with you, Lord, that our hearts and our lives would be open to you. So you help us, Lord, open up. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to make these words of Jesus, these living words, Lord, to be as alive, as living, as powerful and effective today for us as they were when 
You said them, Lord, so long ago. Reach across time and place, Lord, to meet with us where we are. Speak over us as you did over them. Help us, God, to hear and to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it's, it's true what Chris said last week. There is, um, there's something really particularly powerful about this sermon from Jesus. I suspect because on the surface um, it might be so easily dismissed, it seems rather sort of simple and straightforward. Um, something like, you know, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world be one of those things that sounds nice, but, you know, we can just sort of move past without taking too seriously. The the verses that we looked at last week were are known as the Beatitudes. Those are the verses that sound like this, blessed are those who... And then Jesus makes several of those statements. And then he makes a, a sort of sudden shift to um, from blessed are those statements to you are uh, statements. So he's going from speaking to this crowd, which included all kinds of people, maybe to speaking more directly to his disciples. He looks at them and says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And um, I've been sitting with those um, words all week and trying to imagine what it would have been like to hear them after hearing all of these things. And then for Jesus to look at you and say, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And um, especially then when he moves on and he says that bit about, you know, abolishing the law and the prophets and fulfilling them, how does it all hold together? And so what I would actually like to do is before we look at that metaphor of, of salt and light and what it is that Jesus meant by those things, how it connects with us, maybe fast forward a bit to the end of the passage, the part that might otherwise seem really disconnected from from that bit, which is the part when Jesus says, um, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That's um, a really powerful statement that he's making. And on the surface can seem maybe unrelated um, to the thing that came before. But I actually do think they're really, they're really connected. And maybe in a way that would be helpful um, for us if we spend some time there first to, to draw that connection so that we don't miss it. Um, and here's, here's what I think in part, at least, Jesus might be saying and doing. It has something to do with the reason Matthew highlights this verse in a way that's different from other Gospels is because of um, how Matthew understood Jesus, who he was, and what he came to do. Each of the Gospel writers, of course, had a a slightly different take on Jesus. Um, They're all telling about who he is and about his life, but they all decided to do it a different way depending on their audience and what it is that they believed people needed to know and hear. And for Matthew, one of the things that was most critical to him about who he believed Jesus to be um, was actually Jesus' connection to Moses. It was Matthew's conviction that Jesus was, in their day, what Moses and who Moses had been to ancient Israel in all those generations that had come before. And Matthew actually goes to great lengths in order to make this connection and this parallel in his gospel. He reinforces this idea over and over in subtle ways that you have to sort of be paying attention to to see. But he's trying to over and over like link Jesus and Moses together in, in an effort to say they're doing something similar. Whatever it was that Moses did, all Way back when, Jesus is now doing again in a, in a different way here. I wish we had more time to look at some of those connections and parallels because how fun <laughs> is that? We don't have time, so I just had to sort of take my word for it. It, it gets re, reinforced um, over and over. But in case maybe you don't know who, who Moses is or don't know a ton about him, this is the thing that really 
I think, mattered most for Matthew, which is that Moses is, of course, the guy God calls to go in and deliver Israel out of slavery in Egypt, which he does in this, like, you know, really epic event known as the Exodus. He goes in, he gets them out of slavery, and then, um, you know, that's kind of what he's known for. But that that is just part of what happens, actually, because after this epic deliverance out of slavery, Moses then leads Israel on to the mountain, of course, of Sinai, and where he receives a revelation, the beginnings of a revelation that would become uh, the law or Torah. And he's on a mountain when he receives this revelation and issues this teaching, um, which is perhaps in part why Matthew places or at least highlights for us the fact that Jesus himself was on a mountain when he delivered this really important sermon. Um, The revelation that Moses receives at Sinai goes on to become like the foundational text for Israel. It's how they understand their identity. It is the moment that marks a difference in the trajectory of their story. So not only was Moses a deliverer, He was a teacher. He was the person who delivered them out of slavery, yes. But he also walked alongside, worked in and through them to make sure that they became ultimately who God was calling them to be. The deliverance only matters if I get out of this, out of Egypt and get into the promised land. You know what I mean? Without the promised land and the, the rest of the story, the deliverance is just, you know, like that really cool thing that happened that time. But the reason that God sends Moses in in the first place is because there was a story God intended to tell through Israel's life. And they had gotten off track. And the only way to get them back on track and ensure that they made it where they were supposed to go was to send in a deliverer. Then to provide this revelation and teaching to come alongside them. And so what Matthew is saying is that that's who Jesus is. Jesus has intervened. He has delivered us from a spiritual kind of slavery. So that he can guarantee that we make it not just to heaven, to the promised land, but actually so that we don't miss out on becoming who we were always meant to be. We don't miss out on the story that God's been trying to tell through us all along. That that what Jesus did on the cross, his act of deliverance was for the sake of, you know, who he believes us to be, who he is committed to ensuring that we become. And. Matthew was really fascinated by this aspect of of who Jesus is. Now, of course, not everybody saw Jesus this way. Um, In fact, there were people who who saw him decidedly different. Jesus caused a lot of trouble because of the way that he taught the law and the prophets, his Bible. At the time, the books of Moses. The way that Jesus interpreted Moses and reframed some of that story challenged a lot of people. But Jesus really was saying and did say a number of times, I'm not saying anything new. All I'm doing is redeeming a distorted version redeeming the real thing from the distorted version that it's become through the teaching of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees and any number of people had been teaching what was in Jesus's mind, not entirely false, but just a slightly distorted version of the law of the story that God intended to be told. And so when Jesus comes and he reframes and reteaches and reinterprets, it ruffles feathers. So which is why Jesus looks at them and says, don't think that I've come to abolish this thing. I've not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. In other words, I've come to make sure that the law does the thing it was intended to do. That it's actually fulfilled in the ways that it was meant to. That it gets to where it was always supposed to go. 
And the reason that's important, I think, for us to hear and know is because what Jesus intended to do for the law, in, or, in other words, to like to redeem it, reframe it, so that it could be what it had always been supposed to be. Jesus intends and intended to do for us, for Israel at the time. He's a deliverer. He is going to come and deliver Israel in that moment. In the same way Moses had delivered Israel all those centuries before. From a sort of distorted, dimmer version of the thing. I think when Jesus says, in other words, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. He's not just speaking about the law. He's speaking about us, about God's people. I've not come just to deconstruct and dismantle and tear down. I have come to ensure that you can be who you're supposed to be and meant to be. And that's important for me to hear because when I was, um, at the time in my life when I felt the most pursued by the Lord, and in a room this size, I suspect that there are a number of us in this room who feel like we are being pursued by God in some way or another. To address a particular thing, or maybe just in general, you feel a little bit hunted and hounded. When I felt that way, I remember um, feeling so frustrated because I had such a hard time wrapping my mind around or imagining the life that I felt like God wanted me to to have, to live. It's like I just couldn't, I couldn't see it. You know, I, I felt on the one hand this very strong compulsion to, like, surrender my life to God. And on the other hand, an utter lack of imagination about what that would look like. So it's like, you know, what? I'm going to just, I don't know, be a missionary? What am I going to do? Where, I don't, how, what would I surrender my life to Jesus? And then what? How could I ever be myself? It felt like I was going to lose some very natural part of me. If I let go and surrendered my life to Jesus, I might just become generically Christian, (laughs) utterly inauthentic, would never say another thing that was my own or think or feel another, all those, and that's real. It was a real battle internally. And at that time in my life, and not in this way, Jesus, I believe, was making every effort to say over me, oh, come on, I am not coming to abolish or dismantle or take from you. I've come to fulfill. I've come that you could have life. I've come to restore the truest part of who you are actually is found in me and through me. So that, with that, like Jesus in mind, imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And here's what really gets me about that. Who knows how many people there were, but it was a crowd. And it's not like at this point in the transition of his sermon, Jesus um, said time out to the crowd. And then he huddled together a few two or three people over here who were a safe bet, you know, and looked at them and said, you know, blessed, blessed, you are the salt of the earth. Blessed, blessed, you are the light of the world. It was a mixed bag of people. A motley crew of Galileans, just like this is a motley crew of Atlantans. A mixed bag. And over all of those people, 
full of all their liabilities. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's a declaration. Those are life-giving words. They can do something. And Jesus intended them to do something, to ring true in the deepest, truest part of people in spite of what felt true superficially or on the outside. Call them to something. You're a salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And you can, as I do, think, okay, well, even if I were willing to believe that that is true, that that could be true for me, I have no idea what that means. What would that even look like for me to be that or do that? It's fair. Um, that's the thing about metaphors. They mean a lot of things. Salt, let's be real, does a lot of things, not just one or two. And light, similarly, it, it does a lot of things. So Jesus could mean arguably a number of things. I've heard a lot of sermons on these two verses. And so here's what I want to say uh, most simply. It feels maybe, um, for me, most simply true about what it means for me to be salt and light because he says both. And it struck me as I was sitting with that passage that really what Jesus is saying is that my life, when it is surrendered to him, ultimately has two kinds of influence, a hidden kind and a very visible kind. That when my life is fulfilled in Jesus in the way that it is meant to be, both of those kinds of influence will exist. Salt has an influence, right? When you put salt on food, it it enhances, it brightens um, flavor, life, calls things out. But it does it in a very sort of subtle and hidden way. Um, If you've got enough salt on your food where you can see it, you've got too much. (laughs) Some of you are like, nah, it's just right. It's just... Just I like it and crunching your teeth. Um, well, your palate is adjusted, but arguably it's too much. It's not meant to be seen. It just sort of slips in there. And suddenly everything like tastes better and is better. A better, truer version of its what it's meant to be. It's a lovely chemical reaction. And then light is very different. Light, of course, is meant to be visible. If we think about what our how our life would be like a city on a hill... You know, a city on a hill does to the countryside what light does. It, it, it serves as a resource. It makes visible things that are there. Everyone is meant to see it. It's supposed to radiate and shine out. And so the question then is, okay, well, if my life, when my life is fulfilled in Jesus, I am to hope for and expect both of those kinds of influence. That there would be ways in which I would slip in in kind of unseen ways. Through prayer, through friendship. It's what I imagine when I imagine these neighborhood groups meeting all over our cities. That's the salty kind of influence. Nobody's going to clap for you when you have strangers into your house and pray for them. Nobody's going to write essays about that or publish books about you because you decided to host strangers in your home. That's salt. But as a result of doing it, Life happens around you. It's enhanced. It's brighter. Your neighborhood maybe even better as a result. And then there are going to be other times in which there is meant to be a light that emanates from you that people see and take notice of. And that's good and right. There should be parts of my life that when I'm living into my 
my calling, my gifting, who I am as a person, not necessarily even in the work that I do, but just who I am, the people would take note of that and think, hmm, that's nice. I wonder where that comes from. Both of those things are supposed to be true. Now, if this little light of mine, as they say, shines in such a way as to only make me brighter, that, of course, is where the trouble comes in. Because light, its primary function is to do what? To draw attention to itself. The primary function of light is to make visible that which is truly and really there. To highlight things that need to be seen and that would otherwise be obscured. Paul says it is Christ in you. It's Christ in you. He's the hope of glory. There's a light in the life that you live that would make other things seen. And if that light only highlights me or reflects back on me, then Satan doesn't have to puff it out. He's just, he likes it just fine the way that it is. It's a distraction. But I suspect that for most of us in this room, that really isn't the issue. I suspect that really the issue when we hear the words, you are salt and you are light, is that we immediately think, no, I am not. And that is because over time, things like pain and anger and hurt, hopelessness, all those things have been put on us in a way that results in a kind of dimming effect. It's not that you've been, you know, hiding out so, so much as you just feel dimmer than you should be. There is a dimness, maybe other people see it, that you maybe feel, but you don't know what to do about. And when I imagine that in my, my own life, um, these words of Jesus are really powerful because the genius of what Jesus is saying is this, is that it's actually impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. It doesn't happen. Light can't cease to be light. If light ceases to be light and salt ceases to be salty, it's because something unnatural has happened to it. It has either become so diluted or obscured by some outside force that it cannot be the thing that it actually is. And so what that means to me and for you is when Jesus says over you, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. If you would say, but my, where is my saltiness and why is my light this dim? Then the only question is not whether you are salt or whether you are light, but who put a bushel basket over you? Where did it come from? Because the the bushel basket is not supposed to be on your head is what Jesus is saying. You are not meant to be under the light shade. Those parts of you that God has redeemed, that belong to him, you're meant to shine with the glory of God. So if they don't, then we try to figure out, well, where does it come from? I want to share with you a God story in these last few minutes that we have together. Um, that we watched this past, actually not a story that I'm going to read to you. It's not even from someone um, in this church or this country, for that matter. Um, this guy's from the UK. And we watched his testimony uh, at Alpha this week. And I think it's such a, a powerful 
illustration, an example of what it looks like when Jesus comes in to deliver us from dimness that is unnatural to who we are. Um, so we'll watch together. I got in with the wrong crowd and I started to um, pinch cars, burgle houses, uh, become known, me and my friends become known as very high profile thieves really. I used to carry big knives, uh, the, the big knives to the smaller knives down my waist and I was the kind of person where if you pulled a knife out, I would use it. I ended up stabbing someone in the head. I ended up um, stabbing someone just missing his heart and going through the top of his shoulder, uh, the, the top of his chest and his shoulder away. He dropped to the floor and so I was on the run for two attempted murders. And then I was just, when I went to prison, I had such a hatred for the system and I couldn't handle being told what to do, couldn't handle prison officers mucking me about. When I went out on association, I got to prison officer and I, uh, I stabbed them. And then this led to me going into maximum security prisons, being put on CSC. It's where they feed you through a hatch in the door. There's no physical contact, so they have to have ride shields and ride gear on. Um, and that was my life for a long, long time, basically. And I, I just was going from prison to prison, prison to prison. But then I ended up going to Long Larton in Worcestershire. And when I was in there, I ended up going in an alpha course. Never heard of an alpha course. Didn't know anything. And I just remember walking in because they'd sent me down. I sat down on a chair. And I thought, oh, no, it's a Christian thing. <laughs> and we'd just go there every week and I would argue. And the pastor, um, I remember he come to me. He said, right, I'm going to say a few scriptures first before we pray. And one of them was, no one's righteous, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. And then he said the verses about Jesus and explained a bit why he died on the cross for sinners and stuff. And then he said, pray. So I started praying. And I said, uh, God, I said, God, if you're real, come into my life because I hate who I am. And nothing happened. But then, as I was talking to the pastor, I started to feel this energy feeling in my stomach. And it started to raise up and raise up and raise up and raise up. And I just broke out into uncontrollable um, tears. And I just sobbed. <clears throat> and I just... Right there. Because that was a change in my whole life. I knew God was real. Um, and no one will change that now. And then I remember <laughs> running on the wing. People clearly knew that I would become a Christian. So I actually helped them on another two Alpha courses. And then I, um, I got released. I've been in a prison where I... Because you would have thought that the prison where I stopped the prison officers would have been the last prison to have me. But they were the first. That's how God works. The best thing for me is going in prisons and helping the lads in prison. And, and trying to tell them about God. I've got five kids, and then my life. Um, and what upsets me is because now I know um, that back then, if I had the kids, uh, they wouldn't have had a good upbringing. And now they sit on the night and have Bible studies with their dad. Um, <clears throat> have Bible studies with their dad. Have a life, the beautiful. Um, and my life... 
It's probably is my wife and my kids are the best gift that, apart from the grace God's given me is the best gift I've ever he'll ever give me um, didn't expect to cry like that recovered now <laughs> amen the thing that is so powerful and moving to me about his story is that um, you know when Jesus from the time he was, you know, not even born to this tall to in a maximum security prison, Jesus only ever saw Shane as a father and an evangelist. Like that's who he is to the Lord. And the rest of it is the stuff that is not meant to be there. So when he comes close to you, it is not to abolish or take or deconstruct Jesus said, I have come to fulfill, to give you, to restore back to you the life you've lost, part of yourself and your story you've lost. That's who I know him to be. Maybe so. Let's stand together for Abe. Thanks so much for listening to the sermon today. My name is Chris McDaniel. I am the pastor here on the west side at Trinity in Atlanta. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And if you want to find out more information about Trinity or get connected to the life of the church, please visit us at atltrinity.org. Thanks. God bless.